All right, guys, welcome to another edition of the Culture Class Podcast, podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds and get to learn about cultures from all over the world. My name is Nosai Yari, and welcome to another episode. Today, I have a young lady um, from Canada. Uh, she was born in Gabon, grew up in Cameroon, but she currently resides in Canada. Welcome to the podcast, Brendan. Brenda Trinkham. How's it going? I'm going good. How are you? <laughs> good, good. I hear um, Ottawa right now has really sunny weather that everything is so warm and beautiful out there. Is that true? Whoever told you that is the devil because that's a lie. <laughs> There's nothing like warm and sunny and no, <laughs> this is winter. Right, 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 right. So what do people usually do in Canada, let's say uh, during the summer in Ottawa, where you're from? Is it like, I've heard that some parts of Canada, like wine country, Toronto is all about like going out to dance or whatever. What do people do in Ottawa usually? Ottawa is very residential and very politically charged uh, because that's where all the embassies are. This is where the parliament is. It's the capital. And so most people are very reserved. And so during the summer, it's mostly about visiting museums, um, you know, going on boat rides. Uh, a lot of people own boats here because it's a really nice river. And so during the summer, people will just be lined up on the river, lying on their boats. Um, there's also a lot. We have really, really nice trails for hiking. So a lot of that goes on as well. And then, you know, for someone like me, I love to try. There's so many different nice places to eat. And the patios open up. So I spend a lot of time, you know, hopping from one <laughs> one eatery nice. to another. <laughs> Nice, nice, nice. Kind of sounds a little bit like DC. I lived in DC for two years and everything you said, like politically charged, people take yeah. their boats out on the Chesapeake Bay, uh, people go out to it, blah, blah, blah. So maybe, um, I don't know, those those two cities are have kindred spirits in a way. All right, let's talk. I mean, you moved to Canada a few years ago. Well, let's talk to like, let's go way, 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 way back. <laughs> I haven't actually interviewed anyone who was born in Gabon before. So talk to me about, mm. I don't know how long you lived in Gabon before moving to Cameroon, but talk to me about what you remember about Gabon. So my, my trajectory is actually different. So I was born in Gabon. We lived there for two years. Then we actually moved to the state where we lived for six and a half years. And then... I went to Cameroon for my first time. So mm. I was, yeah, I was eight years old. When oh, wait, I are, you, are both your parents Gabonese? Like, was, no, mm. they're both Cameroonian. Interesting. <laughs> so why were you born in Gabon? Like, was your father on assignment or something? Yes, my dad was a retired diplomat. <laughs> nice, nice. Okay, so what can you, I mean, you were three years old, but I don't know if you can remember too much, but. <laughs> no, I don't remember. I only remember what they tell me, which is that I used to eat a lot as a kid, but I, <laughs> I don't know much. I Yeah, I barely remember anything, just pictures that I see. My parents tell me stories, but I don't remember anything. U.S. from New York is where I can recall. Right, right, right. And, you know, your parents being Cameroon, obviously Cameroon is both an Anglophone and Francophone country. Gabon is like purely francophone were you brought mm. brought up to like speak french was french commonplace in the household yeah so french is actually my native uh, language however when we moved to the u.s i completely forgot how to speak it and our mom started teaching us because my mom is from the french side my dad's from the english side and so my mom really really uh, she really really wanted to ensure that her children were bilingual so she would teach us french at home and when we moved to Cameroon, oh, we picked it back up 
very quickly. Yeah, shout out to your mom, smart woman right there. I mean, I, I kind of know how you feel because yeah. I'm starting to forget how to speak pidgin English. I was on a, a call with my family friend and this is crazy. Okay, you forget I'm, to speak. I'm telling you, like, I was on a call and I was trying to, like, speak pidgin like, guy, um, Shebi, I was trying to ask him if he went somewhere where I tried to tell him to, to deliver something for me. I was like, guy, how far? You, mm -hmm. you go, you, you drop that, um, you drop that, did you deliver or drop that the guy like guy not pitching you this time. I'm like I I don't know like the guy was like maybe I'm I'm you know kind of like just oh you've been in the U.S. for four yes. years all of a sudden you don't have to speak pitching but I know that this is I'm not trying to fake it I don't know what's going on so maybe I need to go back on my on my pigeon thing we, we help from you and other africans i can never forget pigeon i can never forget how to speak pigeon okay okay no not like I, I i forgot but i wasn't as fluent like when i was i was trying to say delivery but i was like how do i say delivery in pigeon i was like so it was a little Drop. discomfort like it was a weird <laughs> conversation, but in it, you know, eventually we picked it back up and you know, everything was cool. So um, it's all good. Um, so where in New York did you grow up? Interesting, my last interview with Aisha, uh, she grew up in Queens. Uh, that was the last interview I did last I saw week. That. Mm -hmm. uh, where in New York did you grow up? Actually, Roosevelt Island. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Uh, I've only a heard lot of Coney people... Island. I don't know what no, Roosevelt Island is. A lot of people don't. So right, like, you can take the subway and then I think it's from Queens. There's a tram. Many people don't know this, but there's actually a tram that allows you to cross the river into Roosevelt Island. You can drive now. By the time when we were growing up, it was mostly the tram that people would take. Most people didn't have cars. But I went back recently and it's different. And when you say a tram, is this like a ferry type of thing? But um, above ground. So it's like, it's not on water. So it's, like, uh, what do they call it? Like when you know when you go skiing, yes. And oh, yeah, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Yeah, so it literally carries everyone across onto Roosevelt Island. <laughs> Interesting. And what kind of stuff? I mean, growing up a diplomat's daughter, I don't know how protected you were or, you know, if your your parents allowed you roam free. You were in a new country. You were pretty young. But did you, you know, get to go out there, like experience stuff for yourself or you were like sheltered? Mm. In the beginning, we weren't. And then what happened was my older brother started picking up bad habits. He started hanging around with the wrong crowd and he was dragging us along with him until one time the cops interrogated us. And so from that point on, <laughs> it was strict, strict, strict. Strict, strict. I mean, in defense of your brother, like to an African parent, anybody can be the wrong crowd. You can literally be in front of the priest and like, who is that person? <laughs> you have joined bad gang, eh? Eh? No, sir. Oh, actually, they, they were doing illegal activities. So, uh, I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> in my parents, in my parents' defense, they were selling um, stolen goods. Stolen goods, like you fell out of a truck, kind of thing. No. Worse. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, sh shout out to your African parents for 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 putting their foot down and all that stuff. Oh yeah. Um, so you lived in New York till you were like what nine? Or something eight, like yeah, that. Till I was eight. Till you were eight, and then you moved back to Cameroon. That must have been some kind of culture shock. Did, had you had the chance to kind of like go back for a summer or two? No. And what was the rationale for your dad no. sending you back to Cameroon? Because a lot of African parents are like, "Look, you can't pronounce your name. You're too Westernized. I'm gonna send you back to boarding school in Nigeria, mm -hmm. or whatever country." Was that your situation, or your dad had to like move back, or? Yeah, so what happened was his mission ended, and so they recalled us back. Um, I mean, it wasn't my parents' 
you know, wish, but you know how, <laughs> when you're a diplomat, you don't have a say. And so we, when we got recalled, but my dad alone was sent on another mission, but it wasn't safe to go with a family. And so he had to go alone. So it was just so yeah, my mom. Yeah, that was like a spy with like a 007 kind of thing. <laughs> you, you can't even say where he was sent to. Like, he was just sent on a mission. Not even, no, no, no. He was sent to Angola and there was war happening in the Ooh, country at yeah, the time. Yes, yes, exactly. So he didn't want us to come. And so the rest of us got shipped. And we didn't even travel with him. Like, literally, we traveled only with my mom and he, he left before we we left the state. Oh, he went straight to, to, so how were you he guys set up? I mean, hadn't been home in almost a decade. Did he already have like a house and relatives that like accommodated you guys and helped you guys? No, so my mom, and this is why, my mom is the superhero of the family. She found, you know, a house that we were renting uh, to stay at. She like got everything, like she had to arrange for containers of our belongings to be shipped back home. She had to, you know, buy the site. And, and this you know, was in the with 90s, early 2000s in the 90s it's not exactly like, you know we have all this and shout out to your mom mm. maybe i should be interviewing her <laughs> <laughs> you should actually she'll be the most entertaining guest you've ever had okay you know what you know the funny thing who's the oldest person i've interviewed okay i think mm. i've interviewed daryl daryl is what like 64 maybe well i want to interview more people like like this podcast yes is for oh. millennials and blah 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 but you know like i want to tap into some of that ancient african wisdom you like when you talk to your to. grandma you know, that kind of yes. thing. Okay, we'll set that to. up. We'll set that up. So what city did you guys land in? Was it Yaoundé? Where did you guys land? To the best of my knowledge, it was Douala. And I remember mm. because it smelled. And Douala is the most smelling city I've ever been to in my life. To the point where as we landed, I, I was throwing up. Like, and you guys so need to, pungent. for people who are listening on audio, you guys need to have seen the expressions. When I say, where do you like? She's like, hmm. Her African just came out like, hmm, let me tell you. Hmm. Let me get this straight. You're telling mm-hmm. me that there's a place that exists on this mm-hmm. earth that mm-hmm. stinks more than New York. I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, yeah. I don't believe oh, yeah. It. New York is the oh, yeah. nastiest no. place I've no. ever been. New York, I'm Nigerian. New York, no, 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 no. You guys even have sewers. Douala, the, the junk just piles up by the road. That's what happens in New York. <laughs> No, but no, you don't understand. At least in New York, most people don't just, you know, release their bodily waste by the roadside. <laughs> but that happens in Douala. It's COVID. It's, it's just a mess. It, it was stinking. And it's hot, severely hot. So imagine all the pungent smells that are erupting from all sides. And then the, at the time, the airport didn't have a proper toilet. It was still a stoop toilet. We're talking an international airport that doesn't have a flushing toilet. Like, so from the moment we landed, I wanted to go back. I was done. I was ready to like, okay. At like, nine, is this you didn't a have vacation? a choice. Did you even voice it to your parents that, oh, I'd love to go back? Could you even do that? We were complaining, but we couldn't. I mean, obviously, we would just cry and complain. and like, we hate it here. We hate it here. But they're not Nothing doing anything. And when you say we, like you're obviously referring to yourself and your siblings, like you talked yes. about your brother, bro. How many were you guys? Four. <laughs> Four. Okay. Okay. So, uh, uh, you know, average size African family going back, superwoman leading the way back to Douala. Yes. Put you guys in school. What was your experience? Was it a culture shock with the school system uh, in New York and the school system in Cameroon? How you guys obviously started to learn French along the way, but what were some of your experiences kind of trying to get acclimatized with school? Funny enough, so when it came to school, I found that I was more advanced in English, but 
I was behind in math. So mm. with uh, with my in all my English classes, I did amazingly well. But then when it came to arithmetic, I had to wear my mom had to hire a tutor <laughs> to get us up to. So I was like, oh, Cameroon, at least for the elementary education, we were well way more advanced than the U.S. Yeah. Uh, education. Yeah. And that's a funny thing. Like when we move here, right? I think the U.S. values skill over knowledge. So it's not what mm. you know, it's what you can do. Like it's the same thing yeah. when I came here. I had a, I, I went for undergrad back home. I came here from a master's. When I came here, I was like, this is a, <laughs> like the education. That's why all these Indian and Chinese guys come here and they just blow everyone out of the yes. world. Because the educational system in India, you know, the national exam in China or, you know, Nigeria, all these places, like it's much tougher than the mm-hmm. U.S. I'm always intrigued when, you know, people say say they went to school in a non-English speaking country for the most part. Like when it comes to subjects like math, math mm-hmm. is hard enough, even in a, a language you can understand like English. I can't imagine you teaching <laughs> math in French it's or French. Arabic <laughs> or, or, or Persian, Urdu, something. Yes. That must have been crazy. But we were lucky. Um, our parents put us in a bilingual school. And so um, at least for Subjects like math were taught in English. It was mostly English that was being spoken, and then we had obviously French, and we didn't, we, we sucked at French. So we needed a tutor for French as well. <laughs> and also history, because we knew American history, but we didn't know anything about Cameroonian history. It was just all of this catching up and learning that we had to do. Right. I mean, I, I interviewed Abadesi um, like uh, last year. Her father's a diplomat as well. And it's interesting how if you grew up in a diplomatic family, my father wasn't a diplomat, but he was in the military. So mm-hmm. kind of like just being exposed to different things. It's not like a homogeneous style of growing up like you're yes. also all these languages, all these cultures, all these people you travel to a bunch of places. So yes. that must have been kind of like really interesting. But let me put you on blast real quick. Uh-oh. What's up with... All these camera, what's up with Cameroonians hating on Nigerian music, man? Like, what's going on? No, like, see, no, you see, <laughs> and that people, <laughs> I, I cannot even defend them for that. And it's funny because I've been in a number of clubhouse rooms recently hosted by Cameroonians, and we have invited, you know, some big names on the Nigerian um, scene. I don't know if you know Ubi Franklin. I know um, Ubi Franklin, yeah, the father yeah, of the nations. We know him. <laughs> He's extremely well connected too, but uh, so we had him on, and you know that topic obviously had to come up, and we had to address it. And we also had some of the musicians who started this, you know, this clash. Shout out CY International. Trying to get, I'm but, trying to get him on the podcast. By the way, shout out CY. Come on the podcast. Come and explain yourself. <laughs> no, but the thing is, I feel as though uh, there's just a, a few a number of people who just, you know, made this thing way bigger than it should have ever gone. Most of us, please, you know, we consume Nigerian content like crazy. You guys are everywhere. There's no way we can escape you. And for the most part, your content is great, especially when it comes to music. And so I felt as though some of our artists were feeling some type of way. <laughs> right, right. I mean, Nigerians seem to be, I don't know, like we just get this flack. Like I went on a date with... A chick from I think Uganda or something. And when, once yeah. I just said it was Nigeria, it was obvious that that was going to be our last day. I'm like, well, what did my brothers do to you? I'm a nice guy. I can speak for everyone. But uh, it, it's all good. Are you Yoruba? No, I'm not Yoruba. I'm not Igbo okay. as well. <laughs> that's what everyone keeps asking me. Like, Nigeria literally has like 360 something. Yes, tribes. but 
you know, Yorubas have a bad rep. Yeah, there's a whole thing about Yoruba demons and breaking girls' yes. hearts and stuff. Yeah, yes. thankfully I'm not Yoruba, so I don't have that gene in my body. I'm, I'm one woman, one guy kind of guy. Fingers crossed. Amen. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, but it's all good though. Um, so you were in Cameroon, you were going through all this culture shock and everything. And there was actually an Instagram post you made that made yeah. our producer, uh, Musakwe, actually reach out to you. And it was a very like touching Instagram post talking about how you were uh, about nine years old um, when you were in Cameroon. That must have been a year after you moved from New York and you had yep. started to develop, you know, as a woman and mm -hmm. your grandmother would iron your breasts mm -hmm. so that you would not be sexualized like I, yeah. we talking about it i was like what like we need to get on the podcast that this is crazy because let's 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 go through that for a little bit so talk to me through what happened for the benefit of people who might not have seen um the instagram post what exactly was the situation during that period yeah so it's a practice called breast ironing and for the most part with all the research that i've done it's mostly practiced in Cameroon and some parts of Nigeria as well as Guinea. Um, but most of the, the articles I found have been on Cameroonian incidents. So it's the act of massaging a young girls developing breasts in the hopes of stopping the growth or slowing it down in order to make them less attractive to men. Because the whole idea is, oh, men are going to see that she is grown. They're going to try and, you know, sleep with her. And so in order for the men to not be attracted, let's stop her breast from growing. So that's the whole logic behind it. <laughs> that's crazy. What kind of instrument? Like, isn't this dangerous? What kind of instrument? Like, is it like an actual iron? Like what? So for most of the cases, it's a very hot stone. You know how back home they have the stones that they, they, they grind spices with? And the so pepper take, and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they take that stone and they put it in fire. And then, you know, then they take remove it from the fire and then they pound the breast with it. So like mash Pound it. the breast. Mm -hmm. For a young girl, I can even imagine because obviously like your bones are still forming and stuff like any little accident and you end up in the ER. Yeah. Like your mom... Was, was your mom aware of this? Like Oh, yes. But, but my grandmother had done it to my mom. So for her, it was normal. This was a rite of passage. This is No, but she was, she was married to a diplomat and I lived in all these countries. And you guys were from New York. Like, even yeah. with that, you held on to the... Even with that, is people hold on to their traditional beliefs. <laughs> you know what? It's, it's kind of funny because there are a lot of dangerous practices that, like you said, even in Nigeria, we have tons of them. That there are issues of, you know, um, some places when you get married, uh, they, they circumcise a, a full-grown woman after yes. marriage, you know, female yes. genital mutilation so that she won't be promiscuous in yes. a sense, making the act of sex non-enjoyable so you won't your husband you know you, you have issues of um if you if you marry your husband and your husband dies most most african cultures everyone starts looking at the wife like there's some kind of foul play so in order to prove that you have no hand in your husband's death you need to kind of like live with his dead body for like two or three mm. and if you don't die yourself then you're innocent but if you die you'll get, like there, there's so many like dangerous acts out there and i i just imagine like People don't think about, and like you said, you know, for someone like your mom who had been exposed, but still the culture is so ingrained into the society that, you know, people don't even second guess it. And if you second guess it, like there's, 
there's going to be no one to kind of like listen to you and everything. But, you know, thankfully, like you came out of that situation, but I can't say the same for a lot of girls who went through something similar. Some people might have led to their death or like some kind of like permanent damage that might not be have been able to be corrected in the future. Um, was anything, um, how, how did that change that particular incidence of like breast ironing? How did that change your interaction with your parents and this Cameroonian culture that you were trying to get acclimatized to because you were taking French lessons or you were going to school in Cameroon? Did that make mm. you like have a disdain for the culture and your parents? I mean, at that time already, I was not, I wanted to go back to the U.S. So I already was feeling as though, oh, America is better. Like, I, I really just want to go back. I want to hurry up and go back. And my parents would always entice us by saying, oh, when you finish school, you'll get to go back. So that was always, like, what I was looking forward to. Um, but when that happened, hey, first of all, that it scarred me <laughs> to death. Because I remember it's only when I was in my 20s that I had let my mom know how much it affected me. She had no idea. Like, we, we have... And we had and we still have a really good relationship. But for some reason, I was never able to talk to her about that. And the person who shut that down was my dad. He wasn't even living in the house. He was on mission. And he wow. just go, he caught wind of it. And he's like, no, no, we're not. What? What? Why is my daughter going through all of this? He shut it down quick. Oh, he was against it. Oh, yeah. My dad, he didn't know what was going on. Yeah. Oh, wait. So when you say your grandmother, you mean your mom's mom? Yes, my mom's Interesting. mom. Interesting. Yeah, Got she it. came and she was living with us. And so since she was living, she's like, oh, Brenda's breasts have started growing. We have to start the process. So this is me. I come down, you know, the, the stairs, it's time to go to school. And then my grandmother calls me to the kitchen. I'm thinking, ah, she's going to give me something special to take to school. Maybe Before a, a, you go to school, in the morning. In the morning, oh, yeah. Right. I'm like, this is a real blessing. This is the first time. Then she's like, take your shirt off. I'm like, eh, <laughs> what? take my shirt off for what? She's like, take your shirt off, take your shirt off. So I take my shirt off and I'm standing there. And then she goes to the stove because the, the stone had been on the stove. And she and then she spits on it and it sizzles. Like she wants to make sure it's hot. I'm like, ah, Damn. what is this woman about to do? And then she just brings the stone and she pop on my chest. I'm like, you are standing. Are you standing or you were standing? Just... So she's holding my shoulder and she hit. I'm like, let me. So then obviously I start to run away. She calls for my uncle, who was also staying in the house at the time. He's like, come and hold her down. So my uncle comes and obviously he's way stronger than me. And he holds me down on the ground. And this woman is going at it, pounding. I'm screaming. My mom is there waiting for me in the car. Like, she's just waiting for it to be done. Like, ah. And then put your shirt back on. Go to school. Tears dripping down school. my face. After, after yeah. all that, you still had to go to school. I went to school. And that's how it was. I used to dread going to school. I knew what was waiting for me downstairs. And there's no way to escape. You run. So it was a continuous process every morning. Probably every other. Yeah, it wasn't every morning. Yeah. They would let me rest one day. (laughs) You didn't confide in anybody at all. How did your dad get to know about it? I'm sure. I don't know how, but I am sure. I probably told him over the phone. Like, oh, daddy, you know, my chest is paining, that type of thing. And then he would do it. Why is your chest beating? And then he's like, what? Yeah, and I'm sure him and my mom had a conversation, but I know it ended and I was so happy. My dad is the one who got me my first uh, training bra. Like for him, you know, he was more of the like modern guy. He had gone to school in Canada. So he was way more, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, When you're 
Yes, exactly. Way more cultured. So he knew probably in the back of his mind the effects that it could have. So he was on the opposite. He's like, no, let's get her nice bras. Like, let's get her nice stuff. Like, why are we punishing the child for something she has no control over? No, there are two things there because there are a lot of things that, you know, I can think of that my parents did as well. Maybe not as extreme as, you know, breast ironing. Um, but as Africans, you know, we're, we're brought up not to question older people, particularly yes. our parents. You know, if you're in the same room, you dare not even talk when grownups are talking. Yes. You don't look them in the eye. Everyone is, you know, a sir, a sir or a ma'am, you know, that kind of thing. So how do we even unpack some of this? And we need to have that conversation on how our generation can unpack some of the traumas that our parents might not even have known they inflicted to us. Like some of these things we lived with for decades. Well, how do we even start to do that? Like in your case, any practical tips on how you, I don't want to say confront, but how did you reveal that pain to your mother like years later? Because some people might be listening, might want to unpack something, but they don't even know how to go about it, you know? Funny enough, I didn't have the courage to talk face-to-face. It was through a blog post because I'm a blogger. So I shared the post and my mom ended up reading it. So that's how she found out. She calls me. She's like, are you talking about, you know, the breast ironing? Because I also shared a video and in the video, um, it shared your stories of women who are still going through it right now in Cameroon and they were crying and they were, a doctor was showing how, you know, their breast tissue has been scarred and how they had high risk of breast cancer and all this stuff. I included that link. And so my mom saw it and she's like, I didn't know. Like, you know, I gave like, sorry, sorry. But yeah, you know, she they... felt bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, most things they, they, they just gloss over. Like even with my sister, like I'm like, mm-hmm. I have a, my youngest sister, like I'm like, you know, year, more than a decade older than her. So she talks to me about um... things. Not about bad things, but she tells me about when I was like a teenager and she was like maybe like six or whatever. And she tells me about things that I don't even remember. Like remember, I can remember like I was coming back from primary school. Back then a dog chased me and you said you were going to kill the dog and cook it and we're going to have it for dinner. (laughs) You know, and I couldn't even remember this, but because that was so vivid for her as a kid, like it talked to her brain. So I can imagine a traumatic experience like carries with you you know into the future but that's crazy but you know obviously now you're like a blogger you're like this fashion person like like you're this business person all rounder like i want to be with you like you like when i grow up like you started off blogging about fashion but now you founded like your own fashion consulting and e-commerce platform called melapte um yeah. why fashion what is what is it about fashion why not be a, a doctor lawyer engineer like our parents hey, please please to? please please don't <laughs> say that my mom will probably listen to this podcast i mama back. <laughs> mama look i've been a practicing doctor <laughs> do not say that please if you don't want me to get into trouble because my dad is still holding on to hope that his daughter will be a doctor <laughs> Till now. Say that. Till now. You, you still have time. You still have time. No. Oh, and, and you did pre-med, right? You studied like yes. biology or something? Oh. Yes. oh. Okay. Stop it. Okay. <laughs> My lips are sealed. you get me in trouble all over again. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> but the thing is, it took years and years of insecurities. Like, after all of that. I without going into too much detail, talking about like intimacy, everything, like a self-esteem, like really messed up but the fashion part came because after being you know told for so long because another thing was I was obese believe it or not I was obese 
And so the fashion thing came about by being told by so many people, you know, that, oh, you're big, you can't wear this. And then, you know, going on this whole weight loss journey and all that good stuff and emerging and being able to shop in regular, you know, clothing stores. And like, ah, I have a sense of style. Like, I don't have to wear sweatsuits, sweatpants all the time. And so it began as a, you know, innocent, and then it went into a very unhealthy habit whereby I was shopping just because I wanted new clothes to look good, that the clothes were making me feel good. Very, very toxic behavior. And then now I was able to stabilize myself after. That's how it started. It wasn't that, oh, I was inspirational. No, I was just trying to numb years and years of pain to clothes. Right. I mean, but loving fashion and like going into fashion business are like two different yes. things, like especially fashion right now. And you have amazing stuff. I was actually eyeing that your kimono and now it's cool. Hey. I, I can strut around the house with a kimono, like, you know. <laughs> what red kimono? <laughs> right. No, I'm, I'm not joking. Like if I you watch you the series. wanted to get it for someone. You wanted... No, if you've watched the series Silicon Valley, um, Silicon Valley is like an American comedic series um, here. There's about like the tech industry. There's a dude... Okay. Uh, T.J. Miller is like an angel investor or whatever. He struts around the house with a kimono and just like bugs all the startup guys. So <laughs> that's what I wanted to. But uh, but but how did you come up with the realization? Like how did you transition into a business? Like obviously, like it's easier to start a business out of something you love, so you grew to love fashion. But how did you? Because fashion right now is crazy. Like it's fast mm-hmm. fashion. There are a million and one brands out there. E-commerce even makes it more difficult. You're talking about logistics and supply chain. How did you start that process? Did you start to sell the stuff out of the trunk of your car, you know, like your <laughs> when you were in New York? <laughs> or you kind of like start out legitimately. No shade. You just... there. You there. <laughs> he, was, he was a business. Let's call it a businessman. <laughs> so. Yeah, businessman. No, but how mine started was after I noticed a lot of people, uh, I would get a lot more engagement when I would wear the African prints that my mom would bring me from back home. And so I started getting a good number of followers on especially Instagram and Facebook. Those were my two main platforms. And a lot of people would ask, oh, where can I get it? Where can I get it? And so with with me wearing the prints that first my mom would bring, and then um, when I moved to Toronto, I started being more active in the African scene in Toronto. And I started befriending a lot of designers. And so what happened was it was exchange of service. So they saw that I had a lot of followers. They would give me pieces to wear. I would wear the pieces. They would get orders. So it became, you know, a very symbiotic relationship. Um, but then I wanted, I, I realized that I'm making all this money for these people. <laughs> and I have a pretty good sense of stuff. I want to make more money too. In true <laughs> African fight, I love it. I lo- man, immigrants know they carry last. No, no, it's not at all. Ever, ever. Nice, no. nice. <laughs> so why Malapte? Do you, uh, why, why the name? What does it mean? It means thank you in my mother's dialect. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. Where's your mom from? What tribe is she? Bagante. Bagante. Oh, that sounds yes. like a brand in itself. Bagante. <laughs> Malapte. Okay, thank you. <laughs> That's that's really interesting. Very resourceful of you. What were some of the challenges you faced kind of like starting that? Because I can imagine with a lot of moving parts, did you just like sign up for Shopify and like have a store online? How did you sort out deliveries? How did you sort out returns? How did you sort out <laughs> pricing? Like what were some we of your... We have time. We have time. 
<laughs> because this is a different <laughs> podcast. Let's put it this way. What are some of your, um, what are some of the surprises um, okay. that you didn't see coming when you first started off? Um, mm -hmm. And what were some of the things you wish you knew before you had jumped into the business? The biggest challenge was doing production in Cameroon. That's what I, I did in the beginning. And I didn't realize how unreliable <laughs> people would be. I thought that, you know, by throwing money, at them at least it would be loyal to me. It didn't mean anything. And I was really, really scarred. <laughs> I was burnt hard. You know, I didn't realize just how challenging it would be to get stuff made back home, especially because we have a very unstable electricity. So just that alone would slow production and, you know, deadlines could not be met because there's no electricity. Everyone goes home. <laughs> and you can't force them to stay. And right. so that was today. So that was probably the, the biggest thing. So I had to stop production in Cameroon and then try to produce in Canada. Oh, cost of production, way up. Prices have to go up. So it was such a learning experience for me because, you know, you, you fix one thing, but then another problem erupts and you have to find another solution. And the life of a businesswoman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was really hard. So what, what did you wish you had known? Um, even though a lot of people say if you had known a lot of things, you end up not starting That's, it. It's, it's yeah. better to be ignorant. But what's one specific thing that you, oh, I wish I had known how to do this or I'd had this skill or this uh, connection or whatever before you had gone into e-commerce or fashion? I wish I had joined more communities with um, uh, similar entrepreneurs as myself before starting because then I would have gotten lots of advice pre-launch of the business. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. Makes sense. I mean, you're on culture class now, baby. That's what we do, community. Maybe we'll start like an African business club, ABC or something. like. Wow, we'll, we'll ABC. <laughs> and that just rolled off my head. That's actually a good idea. That's that a good idea. <laughs> okay, okay. We need more people. More people. Like my 10% cut. You know what it is. Oh, give me my kimono. You can pay me in kimono. I take that too. <laughs> I have to make a kimono for you. The way you're you're bent on this kimono. Hey, Let me look, send you a kimono. I, I have a whole concept. Like at the back, we can draw like a goat head because I'm the goat, you know, that kind of thing. But you see how she looked at me? <laughs> okay. I'll put an African goat on yours okay. just for you. <laughs> yes. The, that African goat. That's what you get. Right, right, right. Well, if it's coming for you, I would I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind. <laughs> Um, let me ask you this. What do you feel about, so a lot of people are torn about, you know, the focus on Africa right now. Obviously, like there's a lot of focus on Africa right now with, you know, Black Panther, Wakanda, Beyonce, Black is King coming to America. People loving Afro beats, Jello fries causing commotion everywhere you go. Uh, you and Yan Jalof, mm -hmm. go on. Sorry, go this interview is over. <laughs> this interview <laughs> This interview, wrap this pet you, you just say the G thing on my podcast. Ganyan, Ganyan, Ganyan Jolo. Yeah, Ganyan Um, for for our listeners, I apologize for ending this interview properly. <laughs> anyway, let's let's not even start. Let's not even start that argument. When I come, mm -hmm. when I come back to Canada, don't worry. We'll, we'll, we'll go to um, a good, a good qualified, a good Nigerian restaurant. I'll show you what you've been. Doing. Now, I was in Ghana. I was in Ghana for three months in 2018, and. Um, Let's just mm -hmm. say it can be compared, but... No, that's a lie. Now you're just hating. Go on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, what do you think about, like, a lot of people are torn between the, the uh, on the focus on Africa, right? People are saying a lot of outside, you know, people are co-opting 
or you know culturally appropriating or benefiting uh, unfairly off African art like they have done with other arts like you know India with yoga and all those things and now it's Africa's time while some people are saying yes we need these opportunities we need the eyeballs to be on us so we can you know then increase our exports whether that's through music movies fashion that kind of thing you being African yourself and you being in the fashion industry obviously I'm sure you're well versed with cultural appropriation in the fashion industry where do you sit on that scale do you think think it's nice to be seen and that helps people like you sell more prints in your case or you feel some of the bigger names out there are just you know ripping off our stuff and not giving us the credit we deserve or actually paying market price for those goods and services how i see it is regardless they would rip us off the advantage we have with having the focus on us now though is that when we call them out people listen to us more so for example when prada they did their stupid ghana must go bag. it wasn't prada it was um ugh, it was either wait i think it was Givenchy. but one of these you know big names they decided to come up with ghana must go bags and sell them for about 500 pounds ridiculous mm-hmm. But so you know, like, so <laughs> for like 20 bucks. Less than 20 bucks. What are you, what are you talking about? Where do you get yours from? You bougie. I'm just saying. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> then you're getting some bougie cannabis go bags. She's calling me out. Okay, okay. I take it back. I take it back. <laughs> the ones who don't go back home. <laughs> no, no, oh, no, don't even go there. Don't even go there. But <laughs> sorry, you were uh, saying. Yes, but the fact that there were so many of us in that industry that people are aware of, calling them out, it embarrassed them. And so, you know, a lot of the big magazines like Vogue were now putting articles out mentioning, oh, did you know that they are ripping, you know, these people off? Like, that's what I love. So in order for us to, um, you know, get to that level, yes, obviously people are going to rip us off like they've always done, but the advantage, advantage is our voices are heard more because people now know where the source is. And you it's harder for you now to try and defend yourself as a big brand when you're ripping off a smaller brand when people are like, hey, right now it's all about Africa and you as a white person selling African stuff. Like, how um, can you show us who are the people who have gotten paid? Right? Like, who are the people making it? Like, can you show us your chain of production? I think it's helping to make them more accountable. Obviously, there's going to be people who pass through the cracks, like with anything, who sit through. But for the for the most part, I strongly believe that. I prefer that we have this, even if it's, you know, a long-term trend. At least it's right now benefiting so many women back home. Like, you know, we had, especially in Ghana, you were in Ghana, you know how they have the baskets that they weave, the really colorful, beautiful ones. So obviously, big name brands like Nordstrom are selling them, but now they have to be held accountable. It's like, have you been paying these women, you know, fair shares? Like even Starbucks has been had, they've had to be held accountable. Like that's what I like though about the whole. coffee. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that. You know, to to an extent, at one point, I started to think that some of this publicity stunts are were actually publicity stunts. Like, you just think mm. about. What can we do that's controversial that can get our name out there? We'll apologize for it later. Just make sure there's nothing. But I I say that to say, do we always have to be on the defensive? Like, how do we, 
like, yeah, we'll call them out. We'll do all that. But do we have to always have to be on the defensive? Like, well, before they even noticed that there was value in this thing, like we knew there was value there because we've been using it for years. We've been wearing like batiks and Ankara and all these things for years. And, you know, we've had our coffee for years. We've, you know, had our music for years, all these things. Why do we have to wait for Westerners to validate whatever that is before our people start getting into it why can't we be the ones to like push it out there and introduce it kind of like to them why do you think we need to wait do we need to form this african business club thing i don't know i'm just thinking form it. but the thing is unfortunately for the most part it's mindset you know i could make something equivalent in value to a gucci belt but people are not going to let me justify selling a belt for $500. But it's just mindset of what we think luxury is, what we think value is. And unfortunately, the same way, you know, a lot of people think that going to North America is better than staying back home. The same way they think that stuff that is sold by a big name brand in the Western world is better than something that's made back home. It's mindset. So for mindset, right, right. We're, we're the but, only ones who can change that. You know, it's amazing you say that because I went to school. So I went to school in D.C., right, in Washington, D.C. Mm. And I went to school with this guy, Nana, from Ghana. Like, we're friends in school. And after school, you know, I moved out of D.C. I, I moved to Colorado. He went back to Ghana, right? And when, when I was actually in Ghana in 2018, we linked up in Ghana. Mm. When he went to Ghana, um, he had a bit of money. He wanted to set up like an a, like an e-tree kind of like he wanted to own like a fast food chain kind of thing. So he he ended up like setting up something, but he found that people were not coming. Like he set up like an ice cream shop or something. People were not really coming because he, according to him, he was like Ghanaian. So like, you know, people overlooked it. What he did, like he went to like get a loan and like he went to, there's a, this yogurt brand. Oh, what is it? Is this sweet cream or something? One of the popular, it's an upcoming yogurt brand in the US. It's not as popular as Dairy Queen and all these big brands yet so their franchise fees are still low sure. so they haven't really spread internationally i think they were just in like four or five countries outside the u.s so we went to approach them and say look like you guys obviously you guys are coming up blah 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 let me open your first store in africa like give me like the west african franchise whatever they gave it to him i think now had like three within a year this dude had like three or four yogurt shops just because it wasn't Ghanaian. he said people dates like if you wanted to treat your girlfriend they'll come there yeah. they'll like take selfies like his backdrop started appearing on Ghanaian celebrities like Instagram page and it's like you said like mindset we don't value it but what makes us not to value and we see this even transcending Africa even in the black community what makes us not value um, things produced by black people by Africa is it because we've gone through experiences of inferior products or customer mm. service is always bad you have all this thing of colored people time that kind of thing like so we've been like is it inferiority complex that we're looking up to white people or we've been let down by black people which is so, it? so i don't think we've been let down by black people i don't because i don't think black people we've had enough chances for us to be considered let down whereas you know white people they've been doing business far longer than us they've had decades and centuries of head start. And so they've had, you know, opportunities to experience all types of recessions, depressions, up and down. They've navigated the system for so, so long, whereas we are just beginning if we're comparing ourselves to them. That makes sense. And they're always giving second chances, right? The banks give them yes. second chances, everybody. But us, we just get one chance, we blow it, we're gone. <laughs> 
that makes a lot of sense. You know, in the in the in the with this whole um, Meghan Markle and Oprah thing going on, like I can see that as well. Um, you talked about community. Like, what other community are you a part of? Like, you talked about networking with all the designers in the Toronto area. You know, building your your community back home that help you make the material, things like that. What other community do you think is important? Do you think um, obviously? Being a member of a formal or informal business community helps you as an entrepreneur grow. But do you have any other formal or informal community that you that you really depend on, like you know, friends um, that help you go through like you know hard times? Uh, I mean, you, you hashtag something like Motherland Mogul on Instagram. Um, what is that? Is that like an official thing? What other things are you a part of that you think contribute to your business success as well? many black women groups I won't lie I am a part of them there's a black beauty brunch in Toronto Oof, there's a so black beauty brands brunch brunch okay black, black beauty, beauty brunch. brunch got it yeah yeah uh, part of that uh, she hive which is um, she leads Africa um, they have oh really with yeah. Afro <laughs> okay. Okay. Shout out to you, Afwa. Yeah. You still owe me an interview, by the way, Afwa. Okay, go on. <laughs> Afwa knows me now because I cashed after because she gave a, a talk recently, and I was like, "Sis, you gave me the Holy Ghost. Maybe by you did it." <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's doing the Lord's work back home. So <laughs> no, but so like you know, they have the like the she has they have city has you know a WhatsApp group. So, you know, I'm a part of the Toronto WhatsApp I'm not in Toronto anymore. But I'm a part of the Toronto WhatsApp group. There's so many communities of black women. There's even the black Shopify entrepreneurs. Like, there's so many. And so, you know, just being able to um, be in spaces with people like me who have similar struggles as I do is so helpful and refreshing and comforting for those times when it gets extremely hard. Facts, facts. And and sometimes family don't understand, right? You, your family, they try to support you, but sometimes they're on this. Me being a podcaster, I can understand because when I started to appear on other podcasts, I started building relationship with other hosts. Like they can tell, like they know when you stay up till 2 a.m. just to interview someone in Australia just for the file to be corrupted yeah. and something. They know all those struggles. So like you can relate on another level. But yeah, it's, it's really important to kind of like, I guess, build that network uh, as much as you can with people who are like-minded in whatever industry you find yourself, especially being in like a group such as Black Women who are like, like the most underfunded, um, you know, have the patriarchy working against them, all these things, um, you know, just helping to support each other. Um, apparently, besides the fashion thing, you have other stuff you do, like you have the cookbook. Uh, you know, you know, uh, I'm just a woman of many talents. You know, so you have the show, showcasing the Nigerian jollof in your cookbook, you know, beautiful stuff. Like, <laughs> I appreciate you for that. <laughs> but what, what made you, what made you want to uh, write a cookbook and what kind of recipes are in there? My cookbooks are healthier versions of common foods. Um, so both African foods, like, you know, there's air fried meat pie, air fried fish roll, air fried ching ching, but... We can air fry a meat pie? Listen... And it's faster. It's faster than baked. It takes 15 maybe minutes. Maybe missing out. 15 minutes. Whereas in the oven, it's 40, 45 minutes. So I'm saving lives out here. Please give me my accolades. Shout but, out to you. <laughs> thank you. But my, the, the cookbooks, they came about last year when the pandemic started. So um, I had already started my fitness journey the year prior and I'd lost 
substantial amount of weight. And people were inquiring as to, you know, how did you make it happen? And I started posting pictures of my meals. So, ah, Brenda, what's the recipe? Recipe, I got tired. I said, money making opportunity. <laughs> I, lo- I love this girl. <laughs> I love the way this girl thinks. No time. <laughs> I said, no. I'm putting 25 DMs a day asking for a recipe. No, you people will buy this book. <laughs> right, right, right. Shout out to you for actually making a book. Some people have just been selling uh, Slim Tummy Tea and all that stuff. I have some here, but it doesn't do anything for that. <laughs> right, right, right. So wait, so the pandemic was literally last year. So are you saying yeah. from conceptualization to finished yeah. product, like a year? Yeah, less than. Do you know Lewis wow. House? Lewis House? House. No. He has a podcast called School of Greatness. So oh, I've, he, heard about, I've heard about School of Greatness. Mm-hmm, he's really good. So he has actually a program called How to Write a Book in 60 Days. And so mm-hmm. I actually followed the program. And he personally mentored me. And I didn't pay anything. He personally mentored <laughs> me. But he, like, he, he goes through, you know, how to basically write a book within 60 days and that's what i did like how <laughs> I was to like, form no. your thoughts how to you know package it what yep. yourself D- yep. all yeah, of all that, that all of that he has that in the it's like an, an hour and a half uh video yeah. where he goes through it because he wrote his book in 60 mm, days in 60 days no well i have a couple of book ideas maybe I'll, I'll look into that particular course and maybe i'll even take it like i appreciate your approach to things because a lot of africans where i'm from like they have an idea and they die with their idea right mm. it's like and even when it comes out to fruition they don't share like here in the u.s is different like i had to adjust to it like even with my podcast i had to like look i can't like why am i keeping this whole thing to myself like bring a producer bring an editor everyone gets a, a share of whatever we make like let's mm-hmm. move this better to have 10 percent of an X, you know, billion dollar company that have 100% of a, a zero, you know, kind of come like Africans don't necessarily like you are very, you seem like you're very open to learning from other people's experiences, from communities, from other people's, from your own network and other people's network. You're like a sponge that just wants to yes. take on anything and further, you know, your own cause with it, right? And collect the money at the same okay. time. <laughs> Never forget the dollars. Right, 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 right. Man, I love it. 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 Um, but we'll have the links to um, your uh, e-commerce store and your book as well in the show notes. So if you guys want to click on that, please do so she can make me my goat head kimono. Uh, that's my commission that I'll be taking from her when she sells some additional books. So <laughs> thank you in advance. Man, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Um Maybe I should end in French. I know a little French. Um, Merci, Mademoiselle Brenda. Uh, mm. Thierry Henry Trezeguet, André Balotelli, and uh, Asen Wenga, um, Puyo Ronaldinho. So that's, I said thank you for coming on the podcast. Appreciate it. No? No? Oh, okay. No. Maybe, that, maybe that's another. <laughs> No, if you don't speak French, you don't speak French. 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 You don't speak French
Thank you so much. Uh, before you go, I want to give you the opportunity to plug what you're doing as well, mm, you know, so people can send more DMs and you can make more of that dollar. Uh, plug your Instagram, plug your website, plug your social security number, bank account, address, phone number, all that good stuff. Three, two, one, go. Uh, so I am a young and uh, extremely gorgeous thirty-one-year-old. <laughs> Focus, Brenda. This is please. your fifteen minutes. <laughs> feel, feel free to send your cousins, nephews, brothers. If your fathers are forty and beneath, that is fine too. Right. They are welcome. The DMs are open. Uh, oh, apart- <laughs> are you are you accepting shots? You're accepting shot. Wow. The DMs are open. You have a target on your back. We can shoot our shot. Well, I'll I'll imagine like an enterprising, gorgeous young woman like you who have been snagged up by one of these are your bad demons. No, no, the last time I was snagged, it ended in abuse. It's okay. Interesting. Oh, in that case, maybe I'll publish this interview six weeks from now, so I'll have the head start on that. <laughs> I'll be the first to reach out. Like, I'm not publishing. I'm not publishing this. <laughs> I'll just edit I'm, this part out. <laughs> I'll edit this part out. I'll hold on to this one. <laughs> no, no, wait, wait, wait. Let me plug the important stuff, please. Okay. <laughs> See what you've got. So, as I was saying, you can follow my fashionable conquest on Instagram at the Ankara Queen. And my brand is Melapta. I'm going to be relaunching the brand um, for end of summer this year. So I'm really looking forward to that. Kimonos, different kimonos coming. You need a model for a kimono? I can put no, my I model. with the kimono. I, no, 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 I model. I, I'm the model. Thank you. No, no, for a male kimono, you need like a male model, no? So as I was saying, um, then the website is <laughs> melapta.com. And yeah, right now I'm working with a lot of brands for my personal Instagram. Um, some of us are actually paid influencers. So I'm very grateful to be working with a number of brands, creating content. My content is lit. That is, it's, I'm being objective here. You go, you see my content, you'd be like, I need to follow this girl. So feel free to follow me. Right, right. I can tell already. Like, I, I love the personality. Um, but yeah, you guys, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. As usual, you guys can follow Culture Class everywhere as well. Um, watch out for the Culture Class soundtrack thing, which I think we're, we've gotten like a bunch of submissions now. Uh, we'll, we'll see where that will take us. Uh, keep you guys posted about African Business Club. Uh, thinking about a few ideas just now. But uh, A, B, fucking C. <laughs> But yeah, until next time, be well.